Amen. Thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Norton. Um, if we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. Uh, a number of years ago, in 2003, actually, uh, author Dan Brown wrote a bestseller uh, called The Da Vinci Code. It was then turned into a movie a couple years later. Um, Tom Hanks played the, the main character. Um, Gandalf was in it as well. Uh, <laughs> Ian McClellan, right? Um, hey, did anyone see the, uh, read the book or see the movie? Who's read the book, seen the movie? All right, awesome. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, Gen Zers, right? You probably haven't. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, Da Vinci Code is a murder mystery. It takes place in modern-day Paris, and, uh, and yet the murder is all about a religious conspiracy or a cover-up. That's really the heart of the book, that uh, 2000, for 2,000 years, the, the Catholic Church and really the worldwide church has been covering up the truth of who Jesus really was. And the story goes a bit like this. Uh, Jesus was just an ordinary Jewish teacher in the first century. Uh, He was actually married. He had uh, a child. He died a tragic death. Uh, After his death, a small group of people continued to circulate and talk about his teachings and honor his teachings. But many years later, decades or maybe even centuries later, some of those followers began to claim that Jesus actually did miracles, that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that Jesus wasn't just a man, he was the divine son of God. And these followers got the Roman emperor Constantine on their side, Uh, and in 325 AD, Constantine convened a meeting of church leaders to decide which books should make it into the Bible and which books should not. Now, Constantine uh, liked the idea of a divine Jesus. It gave somebody in the empire, um, everyone in the empire, somebody they could worship. Um, And so the books that portray Jesus as divine, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were included into the Bible. And all the other stories about the true Jesus, the married Jesus, the Jesus that didn't rise from the dead, the human Jesus, Constantine made sure that those books were silenced, which if that's true, that means that for 2,000 years, Christians have been worshiping a Jesus that isn't real, because we've been reading a Bible that isn't true. Now, um, the Da Vinci Code says right there on the cover, it's a novel, right? So we know it's a work of fiction. Most of us got that, and yet when it came out, the author, Dan Brown, and it sold a lot, and it was everywhere, and everyone was talking about it. The author, Dan Brown, suggested that the whole backstory, this religious conspiracy, this this cover-up about the Bible and about Jesus, he suggested that's actually true. That's actually real, and sure enough, if you Google it, right, there's a, there was an emperor named Constantine. And, uh, and he really did oversee a meeting of church leaders in 325 AD called the Council of Nicaea. And there were other books written about who Jesus was. And those were not included in the Bible and, uh, and, and whenever church leaders say, you know, there's nothing that we're hiding, the allegations are not true, there's nothing we're covering up, we all have learned to be skeptical about that. We've all learned to be cynical about institutions and people in power when they say they're not covering 
anything up. And so when a story like the Da Vinci Code comes along, even though it seems a bit far-fetched, and I didn't mention the knights and the Holy Grail and all the other stuff in there, even though it seems a bit far-fetched, the whole premise that there's this massive cover-up about the Bible and about Jesus, it still raises suspicions and doubts and questions for a lot of us. Questions like these. Well, who really did compile the books of the Bible? And why did they pick the books that they did? And is it true that there were some books that were excluded? And if so, why? And of course, the ultimate question behind all of this is simply, well, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust that what it says is true? Um, So today, I want to address those questions. We're in this four-part series. It's called uh, People of the Book. We're talking about this book, the Bible. This is part two. If you weren't here last week, um, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. We kind of covered some introductory stuff in part one. Um, and, And this is a different series than we usually do. Rather than digging into the Bible, that's what we usually do. And we'll come back to that in a few weeks. Um, we're stepping back to talk about the Bible itself. And so today, I just want to give you some background on these actual questions about how the Bible we have got to be the Bible. So uh, we'll start with the Old Testament, we'll talk about it, and then we'll jump to the New Testament and talk about it. And uh, I'll try to address some of the questions that the Da Vinci Code and others have raised about it. So let's start with the Old Testament. And in some ways, the Old Testament is a more complex part of the Bible. Uh, It's longer, right? It's about three quarters of our Bible as the Old Testament. There's a lot more books involved. There's a lot more authors involved. It was written over a much longer period of time. It was written in an earlier part of history. And uh, the earlier and the farther back you go in history, the less we know. That's just the limitations of, of archaeology and manuscripts and and, and historians, right? And so there's a lot of complexity around the Old Testament. That said, we have a pretty good idea of how it actually became the Old Testament. So let me tell you a little bit about the general consensus that scholars agree on, on what we call the Old Testament or what's also called the Hebrew Bible. And I'll explain that in a little bit. First, let me, let me give you a chart with some dates. Uh, The Hebrew people really mark their origins with the Exodus. This is a pivotal event. Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt and eventually they settle into the Promised Land or Palestine. That happens in roughly the 1400s to 1200s. There's some debates about exactly when, but roughly that time period is when that happens. And then um, David becomes king over Israel. We do have some pretty good certainty about when he lived uh, in about 1000 BC. We're gonna read a lot about him in a few weeks. Um, And then there's a long period there where there's a number of kings that follow after David. And there's this long history of the nation of Israel. And uh, there's lots of things. They actually have a civil war and they break into two nations and there's two sets of kings for a long time. But, But for 500 years, they have this long history And then in the 500s BC, the Babylonians sweep in and they destroy Jerusalem. And they take, they kill many of the people that live in Israel, and they take some of the key leaders of Israel at that time into exile back to Babylon. 
And this becomes known as the exile. And it is very formative in the life of Israel. If the exodus is the most important event in Israel's life, the exile is probably the second most important event. Now at the end of the 500s, there are some Jews that are still living in Babylon. They're descendants of the people that were taken into exile. And they're allowed to return back to the land, back to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild their nation but they never really become a nation again. They're ruled by successive foreign rulers, they're ruled by the Persians, and then the Greeks when Alexander the Great takes over the world, and then eventually in 63 BC, a Roman general comes in and captures Jerusalem and makes that part of the world part of the growing Roman Empire. Now, there's a really small window in there uh, that we don't have time to talk much about. In 167 BC, there's a revolt by the Jewish people against their foreign rulers. And for just a few years, they win and gain their own independence. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. And uh, there's some stories about that. In fact, the story of Hanukkah comes from that time period. But for the most part, for several centuries... The 400s, 300s, 200s, 100s, all the way to the time of Jesus. The Jewish people are living under foreign rulers. And it's during these centuries and it's during this time that they compile what becomes known as the Hebrew Bible. Now the Hebrew Bible contains three main parts. Let me tell you about them real quickly. The first part are called the books of the law. These are the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Uh, they were first written down in some form or fashion, probably during the time of Moses. Talked about that a little bit last week. They're certainly edited and probably revised in the centuries that follow, and sometime likely in the 300s or the 200s BC, they are put into the final form that we have them today. Second group of books are called the Prophets. Uh, These include all the prophetic writings. So there's really long ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then there's some really short uh, messages by individual prophets called, we call the minor prophets. Um, This group of books also contains what we would traditionally call historical books. The books that cover the history when all the prophets lived and all the kings ruled from the time of David down to the exile. And then there's a third group of books. And they're simply called the writings. And these include the the poetic books from Israel's history, the wisdom literature from Israel's history, uh, a few other books that had become important for use in their worship services or on important holidays or festivals that they celebrated. Sometimes this group of books is simply called the Psalms because the most important book in this group is the book of Psalms. And it's these three groups, the law, the prophets, And the writings that become the Hebrew Bible that's used in Jesus' day. This is the Bible that's read in the synagogues. This is the Bible that the the scribes and the rabbis are teaching to the people. This is the Bible that you would have learned if you were a little child growing up from your parents. This is the Bible that the Pharisees debated about. This is the Bible that Jesus refers to when he says, it is written, or you have heard it said. Or in fact, one time he says this to his disciples. This is recorded in the book of Luke. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. 
You see the three categories there? Jesus is talking about the entire Hebrew Bible. And the same Hebrew Bible that he's referring to is the Old Testament that we have today. Now, later, uh, Christians took the books of the Hebrew Bible and we rearranged them a little bit to put them in a little bit better chronological order and to group some different books together. Um, We also took some of the longer books and we broke them up into shorter books. So originally there was just Samuel and it's a really long book and we said, let's make it 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and then uh, all these small prophetic writings were collected in one books and we said, let's just break it up into 12 different little books. Um, And so we broke up some of the books, we rearranged the order um, and so the formatting of the Old Testament is a little different than a Hebrew Bible. I have a Hebrew Bible right here. Uh, It's obviously written in Hebrew. reads from right to left. It actually starts in what we would call the back and goes to what we would call the front. The order of the books is slightly different. The number of books is slightly different. But the content is exactly the same. It's exactly the same. The old, what we call the Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible that was read and studied and honored and trusted In Jesus' day, the Old Testament we have is based on the oldest and the earliest and the best Hebrew manuscripts we have from that time period. And it's what the Jews in Jesus' day had put their faith and their trust in as they read it, because here's why it came together when it did. In the third and the second and the first centuries BC, the Jews had come back to the land of Israel. They had physically returned from exile, but spiritually they hadn't really returned. Spiritually they still felt lost. Spiritually they still felt like they no longer had a national identity. They were being ruled by foreign leaders and governments. There were soldiers on their street corners, Persians and Greeks and Romans. Their culture was being eroded. Jewish culture was being eroded by this burgeoning and growing Greek and Roman culture. It felt like everywhere they turned, life and the world around them was crumbling before their very eyes. And it's in those moments and in those years that they began to cling to the promises that God was their God. And what he had done in their past was something they could remember. And the works that he had done in their history was something they could lean on. And the promises that he had made to them that they were still his chosen people. And that one day he would make everything right again. One day he would restore for them everything that had been lost. This was the faith that they had. And it was all found in these sacred writings, the law and the prophets and the writings. And that's why The Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible was so important in Jesus' day. Now, uh, I'm going to do a podcast this week. Um, I'm doing that during this series where we're going to dig in a little more to the Old Testament because there's some writings that come out of the third or the second or the first century BC about the time that the Hebrew Bible was being put together. There's some other writings that describe what's going on in Israel at that time. That's how we know about the Maccabean Revolt. And the question is, why weren't those writings included in the Old Testament? And there's a whole story and a lengthy history behind that, and it's really fascinating and interesting. So we'll talk about that in a longer podcast this week, so you can look for that. But I want to turn now to the New Testament and talk about the New Testament. And let me begin with some dates. Uh, We know that Jesus lived 
in about 30 AD. Um, there's a lot of, of, of solid evidence for this. Um, we know that the Jesus movement after him spread outside of Jerusalem during the rest of the first century. Uh, we know that during the first century, it's actually quite a small movement. Um, and it's during this time that the first writings are produced that describe this new movement. Now, the first and earliest writings are actually Paul's letters. We get these letters from one Christian leader named Paul to a bunch of other churches, and these letters are probably written in the 40s, 50s, and 60s AD. And that seems a bit strange to us because if you're a church person and you grew up reading the Bible, you know the New Testament starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts, and then we get to Paul's letters. And that's because the books were put in the order of the events they describe chronologically, but not in the order of when they were written. Actually, Paul's letters are the first documents we have, the first records of anything we know about who Jesus was. Now, the gospel accounts are probably written next, sometime between roughly the 60s and the 80s. Um, there's other books that are written in, uh, across um, uh, the first century at various times. Uh, we think the letter of James is written probably early, maybe in the 40s or 50s. There's other letters, the letters of Peter and John, that we think are probably written later in the century. Uh, we know that John was the last living of the original 12 disciples. He lived late, and he died late, probably in the late 90s, at the very end of the first century. And we know that the last thing he wrote was probably a letter that he sent to a number of churches in the late 90s that we now call the book of Revelation. Now, you have these letters, these historical accounts, these descriptions about who Jesus was in this early Christian movement that come out of the first century. And remember, Many of these early Christians are Jewish Christians. So the Bible to them is the Hebrew Bible. It's what we call the Old Testament. When they said the word Bible, that's what they would have thought of. And so um, when Paul writes in one of his letters to his friend Timothy, Timothy is a young pastor that Paul is mentoring, here's what he writes. This is from 2 Timothy. From infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures and all Scripture is God breathed. Now when Paul says that, the word scripture to him means the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, the writings. He's saying, Timothy, you learned all these from a young age. Timothy's dad was a Gentile. Timothy's mom was Jewish. His grandmother was Jewish. And grandma and mom made sure that he was taught the Old Testament at a very young age, right? So he's saying, you know all this. The Bible that the scriptures that Paul is referring to would have been the Old Testament. But notice this. In 2 Peter, which is written later, after all of Paul's letters, look at what Peter says. And we're just kind of jumping right into the middle of the letter. He says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. 
Now, some harsh words from Peter here, and and we can't unpack all of them, but it's kind of funny to hear Peter say, um, when Paul writes, it's clear that God has given him some wisdom. It's also kind of hard to understand some of his letters, right? Paul can be kind of dense at times, and he has these really long sentences, and he can be hard to understand. And so I get that. He's hard to understand at times, and in fact, because of that, some people can distort what Paul is trying to teach us as they do the other scriptures? Did you catch that? Isn't that fascinating? That even right here, Peter is acknowledging, hey, there's something unique about Paul's letters. There's something really important going on in Paul's letters. There's something that that compels us to set them apart as inspired in the way that we talk about the Hebrew Bible being inspired. And sure enough, during the first century, Paul's letters and Peter's letters and John's letters and these early accounts about who Jesus was and and the acts, the, the, the stories about the early Christian church, sure enough, these writings are copied and they're circulated, and they're passed on from church to church. And when we talk about church, we don't mean buildings like this. We mean little groups of people gathering in houses, and they read these letters to one another. And when they gather for worship, they read them, and then pastors start teaching from them. And they become the basis of their faith and their practices and how they're going to live out this new faith and live it out within community with one another. And they don't reject the Hebrew Bible. They continue to read the Hebrew Bible. They continue to read this Old Testament. But now that's when they begin to say, it's almost as if there's something new that God has done. And these writings record and help us understand this new thing that God has done. And so there's an Old Testament that's really important that we still need to hold on to and read. But there's almost like a culmination of the Old Testament. There's a fulfillment of it. There's something that we see in these new writings that helps us understand better who God is and who we are. Now, if we go back to the chart, over the next two centuries, this Christian movement grows significantly. Sometimes under intense persecution, and sometimes it's during times of peace. And there are other writings that emerge during the 100s and the 200s and the 300s. Uh, There's some other apocalyptic writings that kind of look like the book of Revelation. They're interesting to study. Uh, There's some other accounts of Jesus and his life and his teachings. There's a book called the Gospel of Thomas. It's not any stories about his life. It's just some sayings of Jesus. And interestingly, two-thirds of the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas are word-for-word identical to sayings we already have in the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. But there's some new stuff in there as well. There's a gospel called the gospel according to Philip. There's another one called uh, the gospel according to Mary. And as best as we can tell, these are written in the second or third or fourth centuries. There's other letters written by church leaders to churches, kind of like Paul wrote his letters. There's a guy named Clement who's the leader in the church of Rome, and he writes a letter to the church in Corinth. There's a guy named Ignatius. He's the leader of the church in Antioch, and he writes seven letters to churches all around the Roman Empire in the early second century. And these letters are collected, and they're helpful for understanding what churches were like during that time. 
So there are all of these other writings from the 100s and the 200s, and then we get to the early 300s, and Constantine is indeed the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he issues a famous edict called the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, where he openly allows for the first time Christians to practice their faith without the threat of persecution. And so Christians can now gather, and they do so a few years later at this really important council called the Council of Nicaea in 325, and Constantine is there presiding over it. And if the Da Vinci Code is right, this is when the true story about Jesus is silenced. And books like the Gospel of Thomas or other books are excluded from our New Testament. Now, let me set the record straight about some of these ideas because there's just enough fact mixed in. I rewatched the movie, The Da Vinci Code, with my kids last night, and afterwards they were like, is this really true? And I'm like, well, there's like a little bits here and there that are true, and they're factual, and that's what makes it confusing. It's hard to separate, because there's a whole lot of fiction involved as well. So just to kind of clear things up, let me give you just three quick statements. Um, Number one, there are no ancient writings that suggest Jesus had a wife or family, um, that's the provocative and entertaining part of the Da Vinci Code. And, uh, and I've thought about this a lot. Even if we discover Jesus had a wife and a family, I'm not sure that would change anything we believe about him. But there are no ancient writings that even suggest that. Even the books that were not included into the New Testament do not ever say that Jesus had a wife or had Children. So it's a fun topic to think about. It makes for interesting conspiracy theories, but there's just no evidence whatsoever that there were ever writings that even asserted that. So that's not true. Uh, number two, Jesus' divinity is described in the earliest writings about him. It's not a later development. So for that whole issue, some of the earliest writings and descriptions we have of how Um, Christians worship Jesus as God so that they saw him as the son of God from an early stage. This is not a later development that comes down the road. Now, there was a debate in the second and third century about whether Christians should keep the Old Testament. That became this big debate. There was this guy named Marcion who came along and said, you know what, I like Paul's letters best and the Old Testament is just all about this angry, wrathful God. Let's just throw the whole Old Testament out and let's just read Paul's letters. Um, There's another debate that happens in the fourth century about whether Jesus is equal to God the Father or he's just a half a step below God the Father and he's somehow underneath or, or submissive to God the Father. And so there's this big debate about that and it's this really theological debate and they're arguing about what Paul means when he writes his letters and some verses in the book of John and all other things. They're they're writing about these kind of things and that's what the Council of Nicaea is about in 325 AD. And there's not a single discussion at the entire Council of Nicaea about which books should be in the Bible or not. This is not even on the agenda. No one's discussing that. In fact, all the discussions about the Bible are about things that are in the Paul's letters and the Gospel of John and all the Gospel. And so that's just, that's just added. That, that, that has nothing whatsoever to do with the Council of Nicaea. And that really leads to the third thing I, I want to set the record straight on, and that's this. There was never a backroom meeting 
where powerful leaders excluded certain books from the Bible. Um, There's this picture of a conspiracy theory of a bunch of men smoking cigars in a dark room, like voting on which books get in and which books out. And that makes for interesting movies and films and books, but there's just nothing whatsoever in history that even fits remotely that description. There's never a meeting to debate this. There's never a council about which books are voted in or not. If you really want a date, if you want to set some event, then I'll give you a date. It's 367 AD. Let's put the the slide back up. It's in that year that Athanasius, he's the leader of the church in Alexandria in Egypt, and one of his responsibilities is to set the date for Easter every year. So remember, this is ancient world, so they didn't have the internet and email and all that. So every year, he writes a letter to all the other major leaders around uh, the Roman Empire, and he says, hey, let's make sure we all celebrate Easter on the same weekend this year. Here's the date we're going to celebrate Easter this year. So he writes a letter every year. And in the letter that he writes that year, he basically says, and I'll paraphrase, it's a long letter, you can go Google it and read it for yourself, but he basically says, oh, by the way, let me just list all the books that we agree are in the New Testament and that everyone's using and reading every Sunday when we gather. And he provides a list of the 27 books that we have in our New Testament today. And this is the first uh, official list, and I put that in quotes, because again, here's what you need to understand. Athanasius is not issuing a decree. He's, He's not recording a vote that's been taken. There's not a meeting that's happened. There's not a controversy that he's responding to. He is just officially affirming what Christians have already accepted and affirmed and been practicing for many, many years. And the reason that Christians had already accepted and affirmed these 27 books as being set apart and unique and part of what we will call the New Testament It's really based on three reasons, or three, I'll give you three criteria. Uh, Early early authorship, universal acceptance, and consistency with the rule of faith. In other words, books that were written in the earliest generation of the Christ followers, those who were eyewitnesses to the events or to the movement that had started and could give an accurate testimony to what had happened, those were the books that were seen as most authentic and the ones that we should trust. Also books that are universally accepted by communities everywhere. And then books that are consistent with the rule of faith, the things that we already believe, the things that we're already practicing every single Sunday. And so this is why there are other writings that are not included in the New Testament. Either they were seen as being written a long time later, and this is the case with all of these so-called alternative gospel accounts, They are all written in the second or third or fourth century. They're not written even in the first century, and so they're not included in the New Testament. Or there's other books that just are not universally accepted, or they're not seen as consistent with the faith that is passed down. So these are the three main criteria. And I don't even like calling them criteria. That's why I put that one in quotes as well, because there's not a list anywhere that lists these three criteria. There's not a test that each book is is given and it has to pass these three different things. 
There's never a checklist. As I said, there's never a council that sort of you know, does a thumbs up or thumbs down on each different book. This is just a general explanation of a process that happened over a couple of hundred years so that by the time we get to the third or the fourth century, there is a widespread consensus all across churches everywhere that these are the books that we now consider as our scripture. These are the books that we regularly read. These are the ones that we consider God inspired for us to best know who he is and how we should live. And that entire explanation can be a bit frustrating because it's not clean. It's messy, right? There's not a date, a great date I can give you. There's not, there's not the meeting minutes that we can all go look at and see who voted which way and why did they decide on that. We don't have that at all. It didn't happen on one day. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen over a weekend or even over a few years. It happened over hundreds of years. And so that lack of precision, I think it can be frustrating to some of us if you're an accountant, right, uh, or an engineer, uh, or a scientist, or a lawyer, right, if you just need precision, like, it's going to feel frustrating. But let me tell you why. For me, I'm super encouraged by this, and why I actually think this builds more faith and trust in the Bible, it doesn't take away from it. Because the process is really slow, And it doesn't happen in a hasty manner. And I found that when there's big decisions to be made and they're made quickly, they're usually made wrongly, right? And so the slower it happens actually helps me believe that it happened well. The process is really thoughtful. When there are discussions about specific books, and there are some discussions, and you can go read about those, they're always discussed really thoughtfully and really slowly, And there's lots of time and space to work through those discussions. And the process is universal. I love that the Bible wasn't decided by one guy or one emperor or one church leader or one council or one group of people, right? I love that a guy named Marcion came along and said, hey, I think we should throw out the entire Old Testament and let's throw out Matthew and James and Hebrews because they're kind of Jewish too and we just want to read Paul. And everyone else was like, no, 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 that's crazy, That's not consistent with what Paul even says. That's not consistent with our rule of faith. None of us accept that. I love that one person couldn't come and derail that entire process. I love that different people from different backgrounds, from different cultures, from different ethnicities, living in different parts of the world, all came to the general consensus over a few hundred years that there's something special about these books. And when we put them together with the record of what God did for the people of Israel and then the new thing that God did to fulfill everything he said to Israel through this man named Jesus, that when we put them together, they help us understand who God is, who we are, what kind of community we should be a part of and how we should engage the wider world. And I can trust that. I can believe in that. That can help me on my journey of faith. And I hope it can help you too. Let me pray for us, then we'll wrap up. 
God, I do pray for every single person um, gathered here this morning or part of our community. And for some of us, um, we acknowledge life is tough right now. And there's things going on and the last thing we're thinking about is who wrote the Bible and who compiled it hundreds of years ago. And so even for each of us in our unique stories and in the challenges we're facing in our lives right now, in the places where it's tempting to give up, to not believe, to lose hope, to lose faith, God, I pray that you would help us cling to you. I pray that even in examining all that you've done in history, the ways you've been stable, the ways you've been sovereign, the ways that you've always been there, whether we can see you or not, it would give us a little more faith to trust in you today. We pray this in your name. Amen.